Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of Septimius Severus, the Roman emperor who was born in Africa and who died in Britain and who expanded the Roman Empire to its greatest ever size. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about the Lithuanian-born solicitor who was legal advisor to Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith and Countess Markovic. Found out about the Blue Stockings, the forgotten heroines of Britain's very first women's movement. And also heard about the changing world of Irish barristers after independence. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Lucius Septimius Severus was born in the Roman province of Africa, in what is now Libya, in the year 145 AD and seized power to become emperor in the year of the five emperors. Severus was a capable military leader and a shrewd administrator and his reign was notable for a significant period of military expansion as well as various administrative reforms. He died in Britain in the year 211 while on a military campaign. Severus had attempted to create a dynasty, becoming co-emperor with his two sons, but after his death they fell out and the older brother had the younger one killed. And so in tonight's show we want to assess the life and legacy of Severus. And to help me do this I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr David Woods is the head of the Department of Classics at UCC and is an expert on the military and political history of Rome in the period 14 AD to 750 AD. Dr. Rebecca Usherwood teaches in the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on the political and cultural history of the Roman and later Roman Empire, especially the 3rd and 4th centuries AD. And she's the author of Political Memory and the Constantinian Dynasty, Fashioning Disgrace. Professor Mark Humphreys is Professor of Ancient History at Swansea University and is an expert on the history of late antiquity, the period stretching from the 3rd century to the 7th that saw dramatic transformations of the ancient world, including the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. Well, you're all very welcome. And uh, Mark, I might begin with you. And first of all, you're very welcome back to the show. Uh, Regular listeners of Talking History going back over the years will remember uh, brilliant contributions from Mark. And Mark, I want to ask a question about Severus being born in uh, what was then, what's now Libya, what was then the the Roman province of Africa. Did it matter when he was uh, rising to prominence, the fact that he had been born in a province? Um, uh, Thanks, Patrick. It's nice to be back on the show. Um, I mean, in terms of his provincial origins, I mean, by the time uh, Severus was born in the middle of the second century AD or CE, this is a time when there is increasing integration of of provincial elites uh, into the workings uh, of uh, the government, whether it's holding you know, posts in the army, whether it's holding posts in the civilian administration, uh, whether it's even becoming members of the senatorial uh, aristocracy. By the time you reach uh, Severus's lifetime, that's increase. It's increasingly the case that Rome is less dominated just by the city of Rome, or even by by the city. Uh, by, by the surrounding um, uh, Italian peninsula. Um, uh, initially, of course, Rome was dominated by, or, or the Roman Empire was dominated by Rome and, and by Italy. But by the time we reach the second century, um, provincial elites from right across the empire are increasingly integrated into the ruling class. Um, in, in, in many respects, you know, this, this won't really have been a major problem for um, Septimius Severus, not le- and you can see that from the fact that he has a really distinguished military career, uh, reaching you know, um, you know he's commanding legions, he's got you know provincial governorship, um, and that shows just how integrated these uh, people from the provinces were into the running of the Roman Empire, and that's part of the reason for the empire's success. It's able to get elites right across the provinces to invest in the empire and to participate in its administration. And how did he become emperor? Because it seems very confusing to me. You have 
people becoming emperor, getting killed, someone else taking over, getting killed. There seems to be this incredible turmoil. There was civil war. There was all this chaos. And he rises to the top and survives. Yes. Okay. Um, now, uh, let me see if I can get the, these precise details right. <laughs> I'll try and make sure that I get them uh, as clear as possible. I mean, I mean, going through it bit by bit or blow by blow probably wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't help us uh, very much is go on forever and everyone would get terribly confused. But essentially what happens is the uh, throughout the second century, you have the empire dominated by um, a succession of emperors um, who are um, often known as the adoptive emperors. So beginning with Nerva at the end of the first century, then with emperors like Trajan, uh, emperors like uh, Hadrian, uh, and then you have uh, the emperor Antoninus Pius. And and what happens is that these emperors tend to be succeeded not by, um, uh, they don't have sons to succeed them. So they're uh, succeeded by people who um, are connected to them in various ways and, and adopted into their family. So they're often known as the adoptive uh, emperors. With uh, Antoninus Pius, you do get a sort of um, a dynastic family relationship with his successor, which is Marcus Aurelius. And then Marcus Aurelius becomes the first emperor in over a century to be succeeded um, by his son, the, the, the Emperor Commodus, who, if you've seen Gladiator, you know that you know, Commodus was fundamentally a, a, a wrong. Um, uh, and then uh, Commodus, you know, although he, you know, he gets this awful reputation, he manages to remain emperor for 12 years, uh, but then his, his reign falls apart, he is, he's assassinated, and then you have this power grab by, by various individuals uh, aiming to um, uh, promote themselves uh, as emperor, so you have an individual called Pertinax, uh, you have an individual called Didius Julianus. There's this famous episode, if you've ever seen the, the old um, uh, film The Fall of the Roman Empire with uh, Sophia Loren and, um, and Alec Guinness as Marcus Aurelius, it, it finishes with the empire being auctioned to the highest bidder, and that's based on an account that we have in the sources. So, so, there's this, um, so with, the, with the death of Commodus, there's this end of this uh, period of stability, and, it, and it, it's now really up to whoever wants to make a bid for the emperorship. So as I say, there are various ones, Pertinax, Didius, Julianus, and, uh, and Septimius Severus, who's a governor in the, in, on, on the Danube frontier and has military backing. Um, he, has, um, he makes a bid. He invades Italy. Uh, by this stage, um, uh, Pertinax has been murdered. Uh, by the uh, elite Praetorian Guard at Rome. So, um, so, so Timius Severus presents himself, positions himself as somebody coming to avenge uh, Pertinax, and that uh, he uses, I mean, he's, he's making a naked bid for power, but he's using that as a pretext to give his, his bid for power uh, legitimacy. And it's simply by uh, wiping out his opponents uh, that Severus is able to um, uh, achieve the position of emperor. But even after that, he's still uh, confronted by rivals. His later rival, uh, Clodius Albinus, that he has to fight a civil war against. Um, and um, the fact that you have the military involved in a lot of this activity probably points to a significant development that's happening in Roman uh, history at this time. Uh, the emperorship had always been a military autocracy, but with Septimius Severus's bid for power um, in this civil war, it was the first civil war that Rome had had in over a century, that uh, military nature of the autocracy becomes much more naked and much more obvious to see. Rebecca, I find it very hard to assess whether he was a good emperor or not, because you definitely have that military influence that uh, Mark was talking about. He is uh, he's a strong military leader. He gets involved in many wars. He's very supportive of the army. But he also tries these administrative and legal reforms. So I couldn't quite work out whether he was a reformer or whether he was a more autocratic military ruler. Well, I think it would depend who you're asking. Um, he is His relationship with the senatorial aristocracy is quite suspicious. And this is a lot of this is due to the, the um, nature in which he came to power. So he basically, he's a governor of Pannonia on the Danube and ends up marching to Rome and uh, posing himself as the uh, uh, avenger of Pertinax. And he disbands the Praetorian Guard. And so the aristocrats in Rome are a little suspicious of what's going on. He does get a reputation for being 
rather cruel for executing large amounts of the elite. Um, I wouldn't say that he's particularly unusual in this regard. Um, other emperors such as Hadrian before him or the Emperor Claudius before that also end up killing large amounts of the elite. Um, so the uh, so the question is here is, again, what, what criteria are we using? I think, um, as, as Mark was saying, this sort of laying bare of the autocratic nature of, of rule at this point um, is par for the course. And I suppose we can maybe refer here to his allegedly famous last words that he gives his um, sons, um, Caracalla and Geta, on his deathbed, which is, um, be harmonious, enrich the soldiers and scorn all other men. And um, his sons and successors completely failed on the on the first mark because they uh, one of them quite quickly killed the other but they certainly um we, we see increased investment in pay and donatives to the army um and this is the start of the marginalization of the ruling elite the senate in this case but again it's a question of the criteria we're using to um assess good or bad rulers he gets a good reputation when he's dead and uh Again, aristocratic commentators say this is because we no longer fear him when he's dead. You mentioned, well, Mark mentioned Gladiator and so uh, they're making Gladiator 2 now and this is probably the period of Roman history where that's going to be set and there definitely is lots of drama and skullduggery and murder and intrigue but you mentioned the sons there and I couldn't work that out at all, I have to say. He seems to have made the sons co-emperors with him which seems a little unusual and... I think certainly very naive to think that they would be able to share power after his death without any kind of falling out. Well, I think it depends. Um, the idea of co-emperorship was not new. Um, as Mark said, we'd had this system in the Antonine period of adoptive this uh, adoptive succession. This was largely because emperors didn't have sons. So Marcus Aurelius has a son, Commodus, um, who um, uh, succeeds him. Uh, one of the anecdotes we're given is Septimius Severus says, um, as, as thought to have commented that uh, Marcus Aurelius should have probably have gotten rid of Commodus, um, and yet he didn't do the same to his own son and successor Caracalla, um, who looked similarly um, maybe ill-suited for the position. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, even in the Flavian dynasty, which was the second dynasty, we had an emperor of Aspasian coming to power who had two adult sons. And this really strengthened his position as emperor because the succession was in place there and they shared in the emperorship at that point. So having two sons who could an heir and a spare to take the position was only strengthened Septimius's position. And yes, um, we, we're told a lot about the rivalry between the two here. And this this appears from the casting list to be the sort of dramatic plot of the next Gladiator film. Um, interestingly, his wife, Julia Domna, the, the mother of these, these sons, seems to have been an important glue between the two of them. But Caracalla quickly um, did away with his brother. Um, after year after his his father's death, and what do we know about his wife? I think that was his Julia was his second wife. Mm -hmm. uh, she seems to have played a very significant role in Rome at that time. Yeah, she's a very interesting um, figure. Um, Septimius Severus had a had an earlier wife who um, it no longer survives, but he wrote a biography that some of our sources had access to. And he didn't even name his first wife. His second wife. Uh, sorry, he wrote a biography of her, but just didn't. No, name, wrote oh. biography of himself. Oh, of himself. Um, sorry. Uh, uh, when he was emperor, maybe one, maybe two biographies. Where you know he was kind of justifying his probably probably countering some of the claims that he was um, a little cruel in his putting down of the rivalries after it. But but what we find here is um, Julia Domna, um, in contrast to his first wife, is in, uh, really brought to the forefront. And we find this really strong dynastic emphasis in um, ideology of this period. So she is, um, her origin, she was a member of the Syrian nobility. So she was born in um, modern-day Homs in Syria um, um, from a sort of descendant of client kings. So real, real aristocracy of the of the East. And she was enormously wealthy. And what is really interesting is, firstly, how, how prominent she is on, for example, coinage, um, both under um, the reign of her husband, but also under the reign of her son, Caracalla. Um, she is called, for example, the mother of the camps. So real emphasis between her, despite her gender and, and the autocratic army basis of this rule. Um, but what is particularly interesting about her is after the death of Caracalla, who was assassinated, her line of her family, so her female relatives are the one that actually 
cause the Severan dynasty to come back um, several, you know, afterwards. So what we find is this real, she's a really important figure in the Severan dynasty. Yeah. And one of the stories is that when the older brother kills the, the younger brother, one of the accounts has him dying in, in the mother's arms. Yeah, so one of the accounts that we are given is that basically um, Caracalla had tried to assassinate his brother on an occasion before and had failed. And in the end, he managed to do it in basically, you know, as the story goes, they're in two separate parts of the palace by sort of staging a meeting in his mother's apartments. And so Geta comes up without his guards and he is he is stabbed in his mother's arms, as uh, as we are told. And then, you know, he was certainly... Um, one of the things that Caracalla seems to have framed it as a sort of... He, as a conspiracy. So he killed his brother as a result of conspiring against him. And this actually leads to one of the most um, important kind of social, social um, legal developments in this period, in that after this, um, Caracalla issues a law we call the Constitutio Antoniana, which... He gives Roman citizenship to all um, free people in the Roman Empire as a result of this. And he frames it as a religious thanksgiving for framing this alleged plot for his life. So he, he gifts this position to quite a few people who would not have had Roman citizenship this time. David, it's a fascinating period and it's a period also marked by by numerous wars and military conflicts. And how successful was he as emperor in dealing with these conflicts? Well, he was very successful. Uh, In one sense, he was the last emperor to really maintain, perhaps even expand uh, the the borders of the Roman Empire. So immediately after his his civil war in the east, when he came to power, he defeated the uh, eastern rival Perscanius Niger who was the governor of Syria, uh, he then uh, fought a war against the Parthians and extended Roman territory in the, sort of up, the area of Upper Mesopotamia, a kind of modern-day Iraq. Uh, then he marched westwards again, uh, fought against Claudius Albinus, uh, defeated him in the civil, civil war, uh, you know, became involved in defending the Roman frontier, frontier in Britain. Uh, he expanded also about... I think, about AD 202, he expanded the Roman frontier in North Africa incrementally, you know, and didn't create a whole new province, but just pushed the sort of the native tribes back and extended the Roman frontier. So he didn't add any huge new territories, but, you know, a, a little bit in northern Mesopotamia, a little bit in northern Africa. Uh, he tried, you know, when he died, finally, he was really trying to push the, the final conquest of the island of Britain. Uh, so he he sort of restored the sort of Hadrian's Wall. He pushed the the frontier forward again to the Antonine Wall, uh, and then he tried to conquer the whole island of Britain. The the, the sort of the people who are called the Caledonians. Uh, he tried to defeat them initially. Uh, he defeated them. He made a treaty, uh, but then they broke the treaty, uh, and he tr- decided them to finally completely exterminate them. Uh, and he was busy doing that uh, when he died finally uh, at York in 211. And was that unusual for an emperor to to spend his final years in Britain, you know, fighting in, in various campaigns there? Because he is very much far away from the, the from Rome and from the, his, his seat of power. But it, this is kind of the beginning of a process, really, where the good emperor or the emperor who wants to stay in power have to spend his time on the frontiers uh, and be seen to be defending the empire actively on the frontiers. Uh, no emperor can afford to allow uh, a sort of regional general uh, to get the reputation as the great defender of the empire, because then there's always the potential that that general will then start to decide, well, to start a civil war and to take over. You know, the troops might transfer their loyalty to the general rather than to the emperor. So... You know, he's not the first, he's not the last emperor to die, uh, you know, in the, in the provinces, and certainly not in York. I mean, uh, more famously, the emperor Constantius uh, I died at York in 306, again doing precisely the same thing, uh, defending the northern frontier against the sort of Caledonians or Picts. So it's part of a growing pattern. It's part of a growing pattern. And you mentioned the increase in territory. I read one thing which suggested that this was the largest the Roman Empire ever was. It was something like 5 million square kilometres. I'm not sure if that's correct now. I think the, 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 the empire was larger actually under Trajan. Uh, he'd expanded, expanded the empire further by AD 17 in his death. But of course it was immediately 
uh, most of his sort of reconquests in the East, in particular, were immediately sort of uh, given back uh, by uh, his successor Hadrian uh, to the Parthians. Uh, but it was the kind of the last, so we say, the last flickering of the kind of golden age of the Roman Empire. The last days of the golden age of the Roman Empire. Well, we are talking about the Emperor Septimius Severus tonight. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be exploring how he affirmed his legitimacy and established a new imperial dynasty. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life and legacy of the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus. I'm delighted to be rejoined by Dr. David Woods of the Department of Classics at UCC, Dr. Rebecca Usherwood of the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin and Professor Mark Humphreys of the Department of Classics at Swansea University. And Mark, can you tell us how uh, Severus affirmed his legitimacy and that of his family because he seems to have gone to some quite elaborate lengths to make sure that everyone knew that he was not only emperor but that he was the legitimate emperor. Yeah, I mean, th- this goes back to the, the point I was talking about earlier that he he becomes emperor through well force of arms in the course of this civil war, um, and uh, you know uh, while uh, you know as we as you know we discussed uh, this meant that the the, the autocratic military character of the of the emperorship was much more uh, apparent than it had been, say, for a number of generations previously. It was still the case that there was this you know this this idea that there should be you know a demonstration not just of might's right but also of you know a right to rule. So there are various things that he did, uh, and there's some really interesting things that he did uh, in Rome. One was. Um, I mentioned earlier that he 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 positioned himself as this avenger of um, the the murdered emperor, one of the other uh, candidates for the throne uh, around this time, Pertinax, who'd been murdered um, uh, by uh, the uh, Praetorian Guard, this elite unit at Rome. Uh, and when he reached Rome, the first thing he did was he he summoned out the Praetorian Guard outside the city, uh, harangued them with a speech, and cashiered them. So they were all sacked. And then replaced uh, with um, with troops from his own legion. So that was quite a, an interesting demonstration. Uh, another demonstration, um, uh, perhaps this time more geared at the civilian population, including the elite at Rome, uh, was he staged a funeral. Now, now, um, Pertinax had been killed in this in, in these civil upheavals. His body had disappeared, but um, uh, Septimius Severus uh, staged this elaborate funeral. Uh, on the Campus Martius, which is this open space um, uh, in the Tiber Bend, um, uh, to, in, in, in part of the city of Rome. Um, and we're told that there was a, a, a funeral carriage with a, a wax effigy of uh, Pertinax. They didn't have Pertinax's actual body. So the next best, thing, best, next best thing, they had an effigy of it. And this was brought to a funeral pyre, was put, placed on the funeral pyre. Um, we're told about it being set alight. You know, we have... Um, uh, contemporary sources that talk about this. Uh, this was an opportunity for all of Roman society to come together and have a look uh, at uh, at their new emperor and this demonstration of his devotion to his predecessor. And then it finished with um, uh, 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 an eagle, uh, the bird sacred to the Roman god Jupiter, was released from a cage atop this funeral pyre. Uh, and the, so- the main source that we have for it, the historian Cassius Dio says, and by this means, you know, uh, Pertinax was made immortal. He, you know, he joins the gods. So by doing this, he shows not just his his loyalty to a, a, and devotion to a predecessor, whom he's been uh, presenting himself as uh, as avenging, uh, but also um, he uh, positions himself as the successor of somebody who has been deified. And this is something that goes right back um, through the centuries of of Roman imperial rule. Em- emperors being deified at, at the you know at their the point of their death, uh, and this being used as a um, as, as something that their successors uh, advertise uh, that they are succeeding this this deified figure. We can see this right back with the first emperor Augustus, even before he becomes Augustus, minting coins, um, showing his um, his adoptive father Julius Caesar as a deified figure and presenting himself as Divi Filius, as the as the son of the deified. So lots of ceremonial stuff, and then. Also at Rome, there is uh, quite a lot of rebuilding. Now, um, there's uh, a sense here where um, Severus is quite lucky uh, in that um, 
Rome had experienced one of these sort of periodic fires that sort of devastate the the city centre. And there'd been a fire in the Forum uh, in um, 191 AD, roughly towards the end of of, of uh, Commodus's reign. Uh, and this meant that there were opportunities for um, Severus to restore various buildings. Uh, and he does this all the way through uh, his reign. Um, uh, and one thing that's, that's really interesting is that following his war on the eastern frontier against the Parthians, um, he erects a, a triumphal arch. It's, uh, it's you know, very prominent in the forum if you go there today. It's right by the Senate House. You can't miss it. It's huge. Um, uh, and what's interesting about it is that it commemorates his victory over the Parthians. Um, um, it's, it's got three bays to it, so there's so three arches side by side. It's diagonally opposite an arch of the Emperor Augustus, which similarly had three, arch, three bays in it, which was also there to celebrate a victory over the Parthians. So uh, Severus is saying, oh, look at me, I'm just like you know, uh, Augustus, the founder of, our, our, of this system uh, of imperial government. Um, and then another thing that happens on the arch is in the inscriptions on the arch. Uh, it mentions him, uh, but it also mentions his sons, Caracalla and Geta. Um, Caracalla, uh, interestingly, is given the name Marcus Aurelius. Um, uh, so, uh, again, Severus proclaiming legitimacy by harking back to this uh, earlier uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius by naming his son after him. Uh, so you have these inscriptions uh, carved and then with the letters inset in bronze. Um, and then what's interesting about that uh, monument is that when uh, Car- when Severus has died, when Caracalla uh, succeeds and then gets rid uh, of, um, uh, of, of his brother Geta, um, there is a deliberate erasure uh, of Geta's name from uh, the inscription on the Arch of Septimius Severus. Um, in certain, if you go to Rome today, in certain light, you can see that, that the, the surface of the inscription has been cut back, and you can see the, the holes where the pegs for the bronze letters were inserted. So you can tell what the original inscription uh, was, but presumably when this was done, it was done in such a way that you know, uh, effectively uh, the memory of Geta was expunged. So there's, 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 there's an awful lot of public display happening at Rome uh, under uh, Severus and under his uh, successors, um, uh, to affirm the legitimacy of this new dynasty and making a real bid for that dynasty to be seen as a continuation you know, of the good times under Augustus and under emperors like Marcus Aurelius. And Mark, Rebecca mentioned the advice that he gave on his deathbed to his sons to be harmonious, to favour the troops and then to ignore everyone else. But the fact that the first piece of advice was to be harmonious, it kind of suggests that he like he knew what his sons were like. He knew that they probably weren't going to get on very well. He knew that there probably would be a lot of trouble. And then was it not just irresponsible and foolish to to think that they could share power? Would it not have been better to to make one emperor and then let the other one do something else? Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. And sort of harking back to some things that um, uh, Rebecca said earlier, one is that it actually wasn't unusual to have two individuals succeed uh, to the throne. When Marcus Aurelius, for example, became emperor in 161, you know, an emperor that we think of as, you know, a, 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 you know, an ideal emperor in many respects, he succeeded jointly with another individual called Lucius Verus, and and they ruled jointly for you know, a, a number of years. Uh, so having multiple succession or or, or you know, succession of multiple individuals is is quite standard um, uh, at Roman practice. The other thing that I mean, it's great to have the emperor's last words, but this sort of highlights a problem that we have with the sources. You know, is I mean. Having the emperor say something pithy on their deathbed um, is a feature of the, 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 the tradition of, of historical and biographical writing uh, in Rome so, uh, and other types of writing as well. So, for example, there's a famous bit when the emperor Vespasian dies uh, in the year 79. He's supposed to have said, oh, dear, I think I'm turning into a god. Most people now reject that as having been said by him. There's also the story, a, a, a satirical account given of the death of the Emperor Claudius in, um, in which he, he, he basically, you know, uh, you know, poos his, his 
toga, as it were, on, on his deathbed, and he he goes, "Oh dear, I, I've I've messed myself. I'm, I'm effectively, I've shat myself." Is what he says. Um, and again, that's that's probably invented. So in a way, these last um, words that you get attributed to Severus. I mean, they may be invented uh, by um, uh, uh, by the author that that we get them from, you know, Cassius Dio or one of his sources. Um, as a way of trying to encapsulate the challenges facing the empire into eleven at the time of of, of Severus's death, and um, by presenting um, you, know, uh, you know using that one statement to sum up you know what the empire was like into eleven that it had uh, a double succession, so it's important that the sons be uh, be harmonious. Uh, that it, it was a situation where the emperor's power rested on the troops, so. You know, be you know, uh, be favourable towards them, and that really, you know, uh, in that situation, you you could you know, ignore everyone else, um, because um, uh, of the of the, the changes that had happened uh, under service. But I, I don't think, uh, um, you know, uh, we can call it irresponsible. Perhaps, you know, I mean, what, what were the boys like before uh, their father died? You know, uh, we don't know because so much of the of the source tradition is written with what happens later in mind and then sort of presents, you know, Caracalla as this utter thug. Um, but, you know, in other respects, Caracalla, you know, he's, a, he's, he's, he's reasonably able, you know, I mean, as, Re- as Rebecca has said, you know, he, he engages in this pro- program of, of uh, legal reform, you know, extending citizenship to every free individual uh, in, uh, in the empire. Um, it's very easy to get caught up in the sort of, you know, soap opera, uh, of the family, um, and um, think that that's you know uh, that's the only story that's there. In fact, I suspect that the reality is altogether much more complicated than that. And Rebecca, it really brings home how difficult it is sometimes to separate the fact from the fiction when we're when we're looking at uh, some of these uh, Roman emperors and their families and so on. In terms of domestic policy and his attitude towards, for example, Christianity, again, you see various accounts there, some suggesting that he was hardline, others that it was inconsistent. Uh, he perhaps didn't like people converting to Christianity, but it definitely doesn't seem to be... Systematic in the way Christians were treated. No, and there was really no um, systematic, what we would call now persecution of the Christians. Um, yet at this time, most of the most of the accounts we sort of the, the sort of um, emperor's sort of state of attitudes to the Christians at this point is um, been taken from uh, the letters of Pliny the Younger to Trajan. On the Antonine period, where where Trajan basically said Pliny finds Christians in in uh, Bithynia Pontus, where he's um, a governor, and he says, "What should I do?" And you know, Trajan just says, "Well, you know, if they get denounced to you um, anonymously, don't believe that because that's slander. But if they, you know, if they appear to you, you know, fine, deal with them, but don't seek them out." And this kind of very localized and sporadic. Um, uh, sort of treatment of Christian individuals seem to have been the case. Um, we do have other contemporary Christian accounts from this time, particularly Tertullian, who was uh, who was in Carthage, and he um, suggests, for example, that um, Septimius Severus Massus was was a Christian at this point. So we we know that they were, you know, in this point in the early third century, there were increasing numbers of them around in the imperial household, for example. Um, but and they may have been seen as problematic, just as, for example, we we have um, persecution and legal consequences for people who may who may have converted to Judaism, for example. They were seen as as things that could potentially be neutralized or, or um, discriminated against. But we have very little evidence for anything kind of consistent and um, empire wide until the middle of the third century. So sometime yet. And we've talked about how he had problems with the Senate. You know, he had problems with the Praetorian Guard and disbanded them. He certainly liked his military and and that was crucial to his his rule. What sense do we get of him as emperor? Is it a some is he a somewhat autocratic emperor or you know again do we have to balance it with the various reforms that he was involved with? 
Well, again, this is the question of his reputation and who is responsible for recording his reputation. So uh, Mark, for example, has mentioned um, Cassius Dio. He's one of our key sources and he's valuable to us because he is contemporary. And he, for example, he was a a senator in Rome. He was a Nava, one of these sort of provincial aristocracy. He was originally from um, Bithynia. And you know, he sort of says, oh, I saw, I saw Septimius Severus do his first march into Rome. It was really, it was really spectacular. It was quite a sight. But he is also a member of the sort of suspicious Senate who was sort of sitting there being like, oh, goodness, we supported someone else. Like, what are the consequences? So there's always a bit of suspicion there. And as ex- exactly as Mark says, like, he's the one who records these final words. And he specifically says, oh, I'm reporting them as I heard them. I'm not embellishing them. But then you're thinking, where did he get these words from? And, it, you know, as Mark says, again, it's a very pithy summary. Um, but, yeah, exactly. We have this sort of these are the kind of sources that we have for this for him and we have to think about how other people such as the soldiers thought about the emperors we have to think about the normal people we do not necessarily have the same kind of source material for them so is that the secret to being remembered well in history if you're a roman emperor just put enough money into uh, paying people to write great accounts of you both in your lifetime and after your death so that then when there are few sources for classical scholars to work on they'll go okay here's an account oh he was this very popular much loved figure reformer and uh, well, just were... and kill the people who write bad things about you well they weren't necessarily being paid to write this people Cassius Dio was writing his own account um, it's fragmentary now all the way from the sort of foundation of Rome onwards so he had his own he, you know he was a senator writing in Greek with his own sort of aspirations as a historian um, but there was definitely, and this was well known for, you know, for example, for the first emperors and Tacitus, who was writing later, he's like, nobody writing at the time of emperors could ever be trusted to give an unbiased account for them. You have to have that, you know, anyone who's immediately after them is always obviously going to be very critical of them because that's what happens and you need to have further distance of time. So there are all, all of these sources are biased in one way or another, whether they are immediate eyewitnesses, whether they're writing with, for example, as Mark says, hindsight of what happened. And, you know, at the end of the, uh, the Severan dynasty, what we have is, is, is what we refer to as the third century crisis. So things changed quite rapidly after the assassination of the last of the Severan emperors. We have a period of a lot of political chaos and people might look back quite fondly on the Severan period from that perspective. Yeah, it's always great if there's chaos afterwards, then uh, uh, things didn't seem quite so bad. David, I wonder, would it be correct to describe him as a, a military autocrat in the way he maintained power? I suppose the way he came to power, the way he maintained his power and the way he exercised that power? Well, yes. I mean, he was keenly aware that the army was the source of his power and his reputation as a general was, was key to his sort of success with the general population. Uh, you know, he increased the pay of the, the ordinary legion, legionnaires from 300 denarii a year to 400 denarii a year. He was very conscious that the people, the men in the legions felt sort of jealous uh, of the position of the Praetorian Guard. Uh, so, for example, uh, he changed the rule about uh, promotion to being a membership of the Praetorian Guard. So, yes, when he came to Rome, he disbanded the Praetorian Guard, but he, initially he, re- he refilled it with members from the legions. So they now got a chance to serve in this elite branch of the army. Uh, and, uh, you know, from then onwards, the, the Praetorian Guard was open to men from the provinces, from any legion, anywhere, provided they'd sort of ha- had a good enough career, shall we say. Uh, whereas previously, it had been very much reserved to men from Italy itself. Uh, and, of course, he gets some criticism from a historian such as Cassius Dio for this, uh, who accused him of letting sort of, you know, barbarian, uncouth people into the city of Rome, who aren't particularly nice to the Roman population, the people of Rome. But, you know, this is now a sort of an aspiration for any of the ordinary soldiers that one day they get to serve in Praetorian Guard and all, enjoy all the benefits that goes with that, the extra pay and so on. Uh, so, yeah, he was, he was keen of, he was very keen, keenly aware of the need to sort of uh, win popularity of the soldiers in the legions. He also increased the number of legions. So traditionally, at this point in time, there were 30 legions scattered throughout the empire, and he added three new legions, um, the Legio Prima Secunda and Tertia Partica. Uh, and he also stationed one of those legions about 20, 20 miles from Rome, at a place called Albanum. Uh, and again, this sort of 
you know, was pleasing to the soldiers in that unit, obviously, because uh, service in Italy was, was quite nice, uh, far better than serving on some frontier somewhere where you'd be daily attacked by enemies, perhaps. Uh, but uh, it, it also gave him a sort of military reserve. Uh, the emperor based in Rome, he had extra troops in case it was, was, was problems. But also having a legion in Rome itself acted as a safeguard against the Praetorian Guard and a check on anything they might do in future. It was he was kind of 20 miles away. It was near enough to sort of become involved if it needed, but it wasn't too near, should we say, to be contaminated by the immediate politics of the Praetorian Guard itself. So uh, he, he clearly sort of wanted to win. And he, of course, he celebrated the, uh, the legions on his coinage as well, and much more prominently than any of the emperors before him. So he was keenly aware of the need to, uh, to win the support of the legions. And Mark, you visited that camp at Albano in it's just outside of Rome last September. Uh, I did indeed. Um, I mean, I, I, I sort of went almost by accident. I have a friend who lives in Albano Laziale, as it is now, and um, uh, she had very kindly, uh, my friend Marisa had very kindly organised uh, a tour of uh, the remains of the uh, of the Severan um, fortress uh, at Albanum. And it is huge. It is absolutely enormous. They basically uh, constructed a massive terrace on the hillside um, for, uh, for the camp. Um, there was a huge bath complex um, uh, for the soldiers. <laughs> when David is talking about, you know, uh, where would you rather be? You know, a cushy place in central Italy with bathing facilities or on the frontier uh, uh, risking attack. You know, this huge bath complex, the, the modern parish church that, that um, is built inside the remains of the baths. Uh, I also went to, again, thanks to my friend, was able to visit um, a convent. And an awful lot of the substructures of the convent are the stru- substructures of, of the baths. So absolutely huge structures. And then this, um, this massive uh, camp, I mean, it really is uh, huge. And, you know, this is not just, you know, a sort of you know, rapidly um, uh, uh, established uh, military installation. This is one which has had a huge amount of um, resources pumped into it. And uh, perhaps the most impressive uh, remains are ones that you actually can't see um, above ground. There are um, one of the things that this uh, camp needed was a water supply. And there is um, a, a huge underwater system. Now, we know that the Romans built underwater systems in various places. And some of the most famous are the ones that are now in Istanbul, in, in what was Constantinople. But the, the cistern at Albano is absolutely colossal, just as huge as anything that you would see uh, in, in, um, in Istanbul. Uh, and, and that, together with the, um, the, the, you know, the, um, the walls of the camp, the accommodation at the camp, the, the baths built at the camp, shows just how much... Um, in terms of you know, financial resource, uh, Septimius Severus and, and his son Caracalla were investing uh, in, in, in the uh, facilities for this legion, uh, you know, part just 20 miles from the, from the centre of Rome. Okay, well tonight we are looking at the life and legacy of the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus. We're going to take a quick ad break now, but when we come back we'll be finding out about his death at York and his legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back as we debate the life and legacy of the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus. I'm rejoined by my brilliant panel of experts, Dr. David Woods, the head of the Department of Classics at UCC, Dr. Rebecca Usherwood of the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin, and Professor Mark Humphreys, the Professor of Ancient History at Swansea University. Uh, David, today is Sunday the 4th of February. Uh, Septimius Severus died on the 4th of February uh, in Britain, in what's now York. And I'm just wondering... Why was Britain so significant for the Romans during this period? You know, you have Hadrian's Wall and, and Severus helps to reinforce that. But given that there's so much of the globe where they could have gone and he had this campaign previously in Africa, what attracted them so much to Britain? Well, it's not really true to say it's so significant to them. But no emperor can afford to allow the barbarians to attack a section of the frontier and to go unpunished. And in a sense, the British or the, the Caledonians, uh, the, the people north of the, of the sort of uh, Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall, they were unfortunate in, in the sense that they were the only ones who were say, actively attacking the frontiers anywhere in the empire at that time. Uh, you know, they were the most important pressing problem. Uh, so, you know, he, 
the, the emperor could afford to go there himself uh, and take a large force with him and, and deal with him appropriately. Uh, so it's just bad timing, shall we say, in, in one sense. As far as, but, you know, other emperors in the in the at other periods are far more occupied with the Rhine frontier, which was unusually quiet during uh, Severus, Severus's reign. Uh, you know, for example, you think about the, the end of the first century AD, uh, the last time that the whole island of Britain was conquered by the Romans was under the Emperor Domitian. Uh, and we had a famous governor of Britain called Agricola, who uh, finally conquered the island of Britain uh, in AD 85. I mean, the, the conquest of Britain began in AD 43, but the whole island was only finally conquered in AD 85. But almost immediately, uh, before the sort of the area we now call Scotland is sort of truly pacified, uh, Roman forces are withdrawn from Britain in order to serve on the Rhine frontier. Uh, Domitian says, no, uh, I want the troops to the Rhine frontier. It's more prestigious. Because, of course, uh, any attack on the Rhine frontier was much nearer Italy, so people in the kind of the core of the empire became much more worried. Uh, so, you know, Britain wasn't important. It's just that all the other areas of the empire had been sort of pacified at that point in time by the time Septimius Severus happened to die uh, in Britain. Rebecca, I'd love a study of his wife, Julia, because I think she's fascinating. She has this significant career in her own right. She's hugely influential. Even after the death of her husband, she plays an important role in the in the careers of her sons. And I'd love to know what she really thought of everything that was happening. Uh, her husband off, uh, off in Britain, the sons falling out with each other and one murdering the other and then getting assassinated himself. That, you know, her side of the story would be a fascinating one. Yeah, and um, well, we have questions here constantly with a representation of imperial women about how whether we can conflate um, them being very prominent in forms of sort of what we might call media now, so inscriptions, statues, coins, etc., with them actually holding actual political power. Um, Julia is one of these examples where this, this point has been argued. So, for example, um, she is seen as playing an important role uh, under her son Caracalla. So when his, um, Caracalla is on the, um, the, the frontier against the Parthians, again, um, where he eventually is assassinated, apparently we are told that his mother is sort of um, further inland dealing with his correspondence, which might sound like, you know, just a bit of letter writing. But the, the correspondence of, of a Roman emperor was significant stuff. This was communications from all the governors, oversight over these things, oversight of legal things. So this is real considerable power. Um, and uh, another example of this is the fact that after so Caracalla is um, assassinated, um, as we're told, while he was um, having a pee on the side of the road, a soldier came and stabbed him. And when this news got back to Julia, she took her own life, which is a sign that she she was apparently going to experience the consequences for this as well. Um, so there is arguments both sides about whether she held power or not. Uh, but the fact that um, the line, the Severan dynasty, then goes so future emperors such as um, Elagabalus um, um, through her side of the family, other Julia, Julia emperors, empresses of this time period, um, we find, again, really, really prominent women in um, art of this period. But again, this is a question of whether they're actually wielding political power. So Elagabalus, who we are told that um, his mother was the first one to dare go into the Senate House as though she were an actual senator rather than a woman. Whether we should trust the sources on this is deeply debatable. It certainly sounds from that that she had forgiven or at least made peace with the fact that Caracalla had, had murdered uh, his brother. But again, maybe we don't, don't really know what, what she was thinking or maybe even the, the ins and outs of what happened there. I, I think the question is, if that is the case, what other choice she might have had at that point. Um, but the fact that, you know, she seems to have been trusted with um, uh, helping, literally helping um, her her son, that, that seems that have would have been the case. But whether we can say for sure is, again, debatable. Mark, I'd love you to sum up the legacy for us because the dynasty lasted, I think, 
pretty much 90 years before, uh, as Rebecca has said then, the period of chaos afterwards perhaps made it look better in retrospect. But was it a successful dynasty? And Severus himself, was he a, a successful emperor? Well, uh, it's difficult to say. I mean, the dynasty endures, you know, you have the succession of Caracalla and briefly Geta. Then you have an interlude when uh, another individual, Macrinus, takes control. Then you have the later members, Elagabalus uh, and Alexander Severus, right down until 235. And then after that, you have what is often known as, you know, 50 years of, of crisis and anarchy. So certainly from the, the perspective of looking back, um, you know, he, he he, he seems to have been, you know, regard, he, he could be regarded as a success. You know, as David has said earlier, you know, he, um, uh, he, he you know, as a military emperor, he's, he's successful in terms of, you know, consolidating and defending the frontiers of the empire. Uh, he's, he's successful. Um, I mean, in, in, you know, I mean, by the standards of the time, you know, given that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the position of emperor was something that, you know, he he achieved through fighting for it. You know, um, he came to the throne after numerous candidates had had gone for the position, or or sorry, had had, had claimed the position and been overthrown and killed. The fact that he then lives from 193 down to 211 is a mark of success. You know, the fact that he's he's relatively you know long lived uh, as emperor, um, and certainly you know although he gets a, a a bit of a negative press in in the sources. I mean, we have to bear in mind that those sources are often written um, from uh, the perspective of the social elite, and and bad press in those sources often reflects the prejudices of members of that social elite. So when Cassius Dio is quite hostile about, you know, uh, um, Severus bringing all these sort of like boorish troops from the Balkans into Rome, that reflects, you know. Um, Cassius Dio's sort of self-image as a sort of refined Greek who doesn't have to deal with these wild Balkan yahoos who are sort of um, going around the city and you know, throwing their weight around. Um, I, th- I mean, I think you know, um, uh, uh, by any standard, you know, he's he's a successful um, emperor. You know, if we if we think you know, if if what a successful emperor is, you know, defending the empire, defeating its enemies, maintaining uh, the unity of the empire, um, and you know, not leading it into into any sort of you know a precipitous crisis. You know, by those standards, up until the fourth of February, uh, two hundred eleven, everything's going fine. I mean, after you know, from the fifth of February, two hundred eleven onwards, slightly different story, I think. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts for bringing the life and legacy of Septimius Severus to us. Dr. David Woods, the head of the Department of Classics at UCC, Dr. Rebecca Usherwood of the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin, and Professor Mark Humphreys, Professor of Ancient History at Swansea University. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night. <laughs>